I remember two things about that interaction. The first was shock, of course, you know, and I think I saw that a bit more in my wife's eyes than my own, although I, clearly I had shock. But the second thought that flew into my mind almost directly after that is, I can handle this. Welcome to You Cured What? The podcast of reversing the irreversible. This is where you hear how real people are healing from conditions that most people think they're stuck with for life. I'm your host, Joe Kalb. If I had to give you some medical advice, I'd go to medical school and get a medical degree. Seriously, nothing in this podcast is medical advice, nor is it intended to substitute as such. Now, enjoy the You Cured What? conversation. Brandon McGregor is a licensed acupuncturist in the state of Wisconsin and nationally certified in the practice of oriental medicine. In 2015, Brandon was diagnosed with stage 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. He achieved full remission eight months later by following an integrative medicine protocol that included immunotherapy without the use of chemotherapy, radiation, or surgery. Brandon is a thought leader in the synthesis of traditional and functional medicine, having written numerous articles on the subject. He is the author of Cancer and EMF Radiation, How to Protect Yourself from the Silent Carcinogen of Electropollution, available on Amazon and from other retailers. You can read more of his work on his blog, empoweredpatientblog.com, and you can hear his story of healing now. Brandon LaGreca, thank you for joining me. How are you doing today? Thanks for having me on your podcast, Joe. I'm having a lovely day. It's a beautiful hot day here in Southeast Wisconsin. It is in Columbus, Ohio, too. So I'm glad we have that in common. Um, And we're here to talk about your personal story a little bit. Uh, You were diagnosed in your 30s with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, Can you give us a little bit of background on that diagnosis? Sure. So yeah, I was 34 at the time when I went into the hospital with really extreme lower abdominal pain. And I had gone in and gotten a CT scan because at that point we hadn't really figured out what was going on. And I was having episodes of this abdominal pain just leading up to this time in February when I went to the ER. And the CT scan revealed that I had abdominal tumors. And one of them was so large, about four inches in size, that it was causing what's called a bowel obstruction, which means a part of my bowel was actually cut off. And so food and drink wasn't able to pass through. And because of that, I was in this pretty intense pain. And so the doctor told me the results of the CT scan. Okay, here's bad news and here's worse news. The bad news is you have this bowel obstruction in the small intestine. And the worst news is we think it's being caused by uh, an enlargement of the lymph and we think it's cancer. So a flurry of tests later, including a PET scan and additional CT scan and, and a biopsy revealed that what I had was a form of lymphoma, which is a tumorous growth within the lymph itself. And lymphoma gets divided into two broad categories. One's called Hodgkin's lymphoma, one's called non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So I have the latter type. And in that latter type, it's usually broken up into a subtype of lymphoma that um, histologically, which means as you're looking at the cell uh, itself in a biopsy, what it determines what what it is. And in my case, I had one that's called follicular lymphoma. 
I also had a bone marrow biopsy, and that revealed that there was some lymphoma cells within my bone marrow itself. So that automatically bumped me up to stage four because at that point I had metastasized into my bone. So, uh, yeah, so the, the final diagnosis was stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma subtype follicular lymphoma, which is a very slow-growing um, lymphoma, and it is considered incurable, which means... Uh, all that conventional oncology can hope to do is to basically put it in remission and then grant you what they call durable remission, which means you have that remission. It's sustained for years on end. Um, it's a it's a diagnosis that's typical of uh, older people, um, you know, maybe in their 60s or older at least. And and I was here as a 34 year old with uh, a stage four lymphoma diagnosis. Wow. So what was that like, um, you know, when you got home from the doctor's office that day and, you know, trying to collect yourself, what, what went through your mind at that point? So interesting. That's, it's a good question because, so there's the initial shock. I can remember that. I can remember my wife being with me. We, we had a two-year-old at the time. And, um, when I was having this pretty intense episode of abdominal pain, it was towards the evening. So we called a friend to come after we'd put her to bed and just to hang out in the house. And then the two of us, my wife and I went to the ER. And so I remember my wife being next to me. And I remember this ER doctor telling us that, you know, they thought it was lymphoma. And at that point, they actually admitted me to the hospital because of the nature of the bowel obstruction. They didn't know if it would get worse and if they would have to do surgery and resection my small intestine. Um, so I remember two things about that interaction. It's, so this is a really key question. I'm glad you asked it. The first was shock, of course, you know, and I think I saw that a bit more in my wife's eyes than my own, although I, clearly I had shock. But the second thought that flew into my mind almost directly after that is I can handle this. And I don't know where that thought came from. I really don't to this day. Um, Maybe it's just because I'm a healthcare provider myself and I work with patients and I have, you know, right now for 15 years, I've, I've been working with, with patients. And one of the things I always enjoy, enjoy about patient care is figuring people out, you know, finding what are all the, the reasons and behind what it, whatever they've come in to see me and, and what I can do to help them. And so almost immediately, I, I kind of, the, the, the um, emotional side of me went into shock and then another part of me went into clinician mode, like, okay, we can figure this out. What can we do? So I had these two opposing things colliding all at the same time. And of course, you know, the shock is natural. Anyone who gets a cancer diagnosis at any age, it's absolutely shocking. But then part of me almost immediately shifted into, okay, what do we do about this? And the thought that really came to me was, I think I'm, I'm going to be okay. So wow. that was the start of it. Yeah. I mean, literally that was minutes after diagnosis that I at least had that. And of course it was, it was a whole interplay back and forth between those thoughts and the hours and the days after that. But at least initially, those were the two thoughts that flew into my head. That's an incredible mindset. I love it. It's a, it's a real problem solver mindset. Um, so what happened? Um, did they give a prognosis? Is there you mentioned that um, it's typically considered incurable and, you know, best case is uh, durable remission. Yeah. Did they um, have any kind of specific prediction in your case about how it would uh, unfold? 
No. And it's interesting because my oncologist, who um, I saw him earlier this year, January, I'd gotten another follow-up scan, which was clear, by the way. So I'm five years out now, just for the record. Um, To his credit, he never gave me a prognosis and I never asked him for one. And what's interesting about that for me, uh, one, I didn't want a prognosis. I didn't want to think along those lines. And two, I think uh, in some ways he kind of knew that too. And he didn't want to sow my mind with, um, with, with anything at that point. He didn't want to have any expectations placed upon me. And I think that's really key for a couple of reasons. Um, when you get a, a, a kind of a devastating diagnosis like that, um, there, there is the potential for any medical professional to do what's called medical hexing, which just means they, they declare a prognosis and then it's almost like the mind of that and the heart of that individual, that patient almost lines up with it. You know, let's say, you know, you've got six months to live and then people die at six months. Now, maybe that was an ex- excellent prediction on the part of the doctor or the oncologist, or maybe there was the person um, almost having a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and I don't know which of those is true, but for what it's worth, I think my oncologist um, knew at that point that I didn't want to hear that information. <laughs> and so he didn't tell me and I still haven't asked him. Now, all I pretty much got out of him um, to be more direct to answer your question is, I asked if I can get to five years without a recurrence, would, would he feel like there's something different about me? And the answer was yes. So, and here I am now five years out because my diagnosis was in 2015. We were here in 2020. I had gotten um, a CT scan in uh, January of this year. Um, and I was, it was still perfectly clear the way that it was um, when I was in remission. So, you know, uh, I'm grateful. I'm, I'm humble by that. Uh, results. And I don't know what the future holds, but um, for right now, I think I'm doing all right. That is fantastic. And it speaks once again to mindset. Um, I think, well, I I know that's something that's important to you um, based Mm -hmm. on um, something that you mentioned on another podcast that I know you're working on. Uh, I know you've got uh, um, a second book that you're working on. You have one you know, listeners might have heard about it in the intro, but, um, you know, cancer and EMF radiation, how to protect yourself from the silent carcinogen of electropollution mm-hmm. is your current book. And uh, you're working on another book related to uh, mindset. Is that correct? Yeah. So the tentative title is Cancer, Stress, and Mindset. And uh, it's written at this point. My editor has it, so it's in her hands. Um, oh. But... And, and, you know, the, the first book was kind of my, you know, my, my freshman effort just to, to get something out there and to learn about the whole publishing world. And this one um, goes into what I feel like is um, one of the main aspects or one of the main things I want to get across to other cancer patients is how critical mindset really is and, uh, and how an important, uh, what the important role it plays in the healing process. And so I do talk very generally about stress and, and how stress itself can promote cancer, but then also how do we relate to our diagnosis um, as a cancer patient and how do we think about our, our, um, ourselves going forward. And so that is the power of mindset. So yeah, absolutely. Um, it's something that I think about practically every single day since that time. That I, I can't wait for that to come out. Um, I will certainly be reading it. Um, I, you know, getting back to your story, you, you got home and you had the, the mix of 
shock and also your clinician's mindset of, I can handle this, and how am I going to do it? What, what were your next steps? So I guess the first step was to see what conventional oncology had to offer me. And um, I, I did decide on an oncologist in the hospital system that I went to, um, who I like and who I still communicate with to this day. And I ended up getting a second opinion in Madison, Wisconsin, who was a, someone who was a lymphoma specialist. So that kind of formed the backbone of what I can expect reasonably. Um, so I can tell you what was offered to me at that point. Because I was, uh, my tumor burden is what they call it, was progressed to the point where it was causing symptoms. In my case, it was causing a bowel obstruction. Um, what they recommended was to do the most aggressive therapy, which was, um, there's no radiation or surgery that can really be done for these kind of soft lymph uh, tumors. So the only real option is chemotherapy. And so they recommended pretty much the high dose, what's called induction chemotherapy, which means you hit it hard, you hit it fast, you hope that everything shrinks efficiently, and then you ride it out maybe with um, you know that course of chemotherapy until that person's in remission. There was one ancillary therapy that um, goes with that Uh, heavy-duty chemo, and it's called uh, immunotherapy. And that's basically using a drug that will help your immune system to target those cancer cells. And so uh, what was basically offered to me was what's called RCHOP. R stands for rituxan, which is the immunotherapy drug. And then the CHOP, the C-H-O-P part, is this cocktail of chemotherapy. And um, so Basically, after considering that this is all they had to offer me, which what I was grateful for, that they had something for me, I decided that um, it really wasn't going to be for me yet. And by that, I mean, I felt like I wanted to see what I can do in terms of maybe building an integrative protocol. So almost immediately, one of the first things I did is I shot an email out there to a lot of my colleagues and friends um, in the kind of the holistic medicine world and said, here's what's going on. Um, What do you guys, what do you all think? And I met with uh, someone close by, a friend of mine who's a naturopathic physician, um, another friend of mine who's a naturopath. So two different naturopaths, uh, two different holistic medical doctors who I had worked with extensively, and then my own knowledge base. And I kind of started piecing some things together. And so looking at the conventional protocol that was offered to me, the only thing that I really felt good about that I can get my heart behind was this immunotherapy drug rituxan. And that was because the side effects were very, very low. It's very safe. It's a very old drug. It's been around for a long time. And we knew that for sure it would help to at least lower the tumor burden. So what I suggested to my oncologist at this point is, are you willing to just go through a series of this rituxan as a single agent drug and let me kind of dial in some of my own, you know, dietary work, you know, different supplements, things like that, things that I had researched and felt really good about. Begrudgingly, he agreed to it, to his credit again. And I, and I wonder if in retrospect, I don't know if this is true, but I wonder if he agreed to it because the fact that at least um, from the conventional perspective, follicular lymphoma is considered incurable. And so it's almost as if, throw your hands up, what what harm can I do at this point? Let's see if it works. This is what he wants to do. And we always have the chemotherapy as a plan B. And that's kind of what my perspective was. So he consented to it. Um, and what we ended up starting with is doing 
a session of this aminotherapy drug rituxan once a week for four weeks in a row, and then I would do another a follow-up um, scan just to see how it worked. And so we did that. And then after uh, four sessions, got a follow-up scan, and the tumor burden had reduced about, I think, 30% or so. So good. I, I responded to it, but I was far from being in remission. Uh, at this point, what he said is, well, let's do um, every couple months, we'll just do a little tune-up session and write it out through the rest of the year and see kind of how we do. So now back up a little bit at this point, you know, while I'm getting these four sessions, so this is a month's worth of time, I'm meeting with all these different practitioner friends of mine, and I'm starting to kind of formulate what this protocol would look like for me. So now that we've gone through these first four sessions, and my oncologist was very clear, I don't want to, he didn't want me to do anything else during those first four sessions. So I respected that. He didn't want to say, don't take any herbs, don't do anything crazy. We just want to see how you respond with just this drug. That's fine. I, I respected that. And so I didn't do much during that time period. But then after that four weeks and those four sessions were over, that's when I kicked it in the high gear. And that's when I started using different supplements and homeopathics and really doing dietary stuff. I started really digging in deep emotionally and spiritually and kind of where I was at with all this. And so that kind of marked the next several months where all these things now were all combined. So yes, I was getting these immunotherapy sessions every two months, but then I was of course doing all this other stuff in the background. So that took me all the way to November. I was diagnosed in February. I think those first four sessions were in kind of March into April. And then I had these follow-up rituxan treatments every two months. I got a follow-up scan in November of that year in 2015, and that's the one that showed I was in complete remission. Wow. So seven months or eight months later, as it were, and um, seven aminotherapy sessions plus all the work that I did had gotten me all the way there. So That, that is terrific. Yeah. And so now I just have to... Uh, have to dive in and hear what some of these other uh, parts of your integrative approach were. Yeah, uh, sure. Yeah. So it was extensive to be sure. Um, and before I just, I should preface by saying as I, before I dive in, you know, one of my, what the, one of the logic that I held very close to my heart through this process is um, as I'm researching these natural therapies, the, the key benefit to them is you can keep doing them. I mean, you can keep doing them indefinitely if you need to. And you can't do that with chemotherapy, obviously. That You know, you'll die from the drug long before you die from the cancer if you were to do it day in and day out. And that's why you can only do it for a certain length of time. You have to take a break, let your body heal. So I'm in this position, okay, let's throw the kitchen sink at it, right? So I would, I would tell you basically I would divide it into some categories. And then if you want to kind of dive into any specific category, um, we can do that. So one of them is kind of this, you know, whole uh, mindset, emotional, spiritual piece. And to me, it's of critical importance. It's probably one of the first things I try to do when I ever have a patient come into my clinic now who has a cancer diagnosis is to figure out where they are and see if their head's in the game. And so I have questions that I ask um, a cancer patient if they come to my clinic. And these are the same questions I asked myself, basically, when I was when I handed this diagnosis. And one of them is, for instance, um, how will I be a better person on the other side of this? How will I be a stronger, more empowered person through this process? 
Um, and I think that's a really important question to ask of yourself. Um, you know, how will I grow? How will I be stronger? Because that really shapes and informs the decisions that you make. If you have kind of the goal in mind, how I'm going to be stronger and better on the other side of this, every, you know, it seems like all your ducks can start getting in a row. Everything can kind of align itself with who you want to become on the other side of this. Um, another question that I ask cancer patients and one again that I've asked myself is, is there any time in your life that you didn't want to be here anymore? And I'm not thinking in terms of that I ever have suicidal ideations or did you thinking of the cancer patient in front of me ever has suicidal ideations. It's more, is there a time you just wanted to give up? You didn't want to be on planet earth just because things got so, so bad. And even if you weren't serious and contemplating suicide, where it was just life gets so difficult that um, you just felt like throwing in a towel, even if just in passing that have that thought. And if so, go to the, go heal that place, wherever that was, whatever that trauma was, find some healing in there from it. So these are the kind of questions that I like to ask because it feels like it really then frames the, the context of your healing. Where are you going to go from here? Um, and then, so once I've kind of have a little bit of that spiritual context of, okay, who am I as a person? How am I going to grow from this? How am I going to help other people in the process? Um, I have now the motivation with which to start moving forward, making some, some decisions for myself. So that's the mindset piece in a nutshell. There's a lot more to it. And I explore that in my upcoming book, but so once you kind of have your head in the game, so to speak, and, you've, and you're starting to, to align yourself with what the, what the end goal is in mind, then it's just about kind of figuring out what are the right other therapies that really make a difference? So for me, in reflection of that, okay, I have a lymphoma diagnosis. And lymphoma to me, okay, what is the lymph of the body? Okay, let's, let's talk, you know, both literally and metaphorically. The lymph is... Uh, a structure within the body that is like the sewer system. It's cleaning out gunk that doesn't belong there anymore. And so I have this B cell lymphoma, which means the, the immune cells and as they're operating within the lymph have become damaged in such a way that they have become malignant. So whenever I hear the word lymphoma, I'm thinking excess toxicity, right? What are the things that you're being exposed to that can cause this this, you know, toxic reaction in the body. And one of my naturopaths, that's the, that's the angle she took. So one of the first things she did is we did a heavy metal test on me, um, which involved, it's a urine test where we, we sampled my urine before as a, as a control. She gave me a, an oral chelator and then measured my urine afterwards to see how much toxic metals that, that, um, that chelator pulled out of my system. And I was really high in lead, somewhat high in mercury, but really high in lead, sufficient that it was of concern. And lead um, deposits itself in the bones. So now it's a bit speculation on my part because I never really found any, you know, like damning evidence that lymphoma can be caused by by excess in lead. But for sure, there's some interaction with the bone, perhaps in the marrow. And Frankly, if it's there and it's causing an issue, I want to address it, whether or not it's like the, you know, singular cause. In fact, I don't even think that way when it comes to cancer. I don't think about what is the one cause. I think about what are all the myriad different aspects that have weakened the body or maybe are carcinogenic that can get you to the place that you are now. And so I addressed through chelation um, uh, the lead that we found. Um, this same naturopath also 
did some investigation in terms of where I grew up. I grew up in Northeast New Jersey and she did identify that even in the neighborhood that I grew up in, she had a very specific database for this, that I was likely exposed in the years that I was there to an aerosolized chemical that was used in that area that was linked to non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we knew I had to do some detoxification, the very least. So that, for me, that involved um, some chelation work and um, doing some extensive work with Asana. That was kind of the, that's what I ended up uh, gravitating towards was doing some sauna work and doing that several times a week to kind of sweat out all this excess crud that I've uh, been exposed to. And I did that for, for several years. I mean, for the first few years, for sure, after my diagnosis. So that kind of marks the detox piece. Uh, after that, I think the next, you know, big category that I would say is uh, working on diet. Um, now I had a pretty clean diet for the most part going up to this, to that diagnosis, but I didn't absolutely make some changes. Um, th- there's a lot of discussion about diet and cancer. It's an absolute minefield of a topic to talk about, <laughs> but, um, and I have my opinions on it and it's probably a book I'll write at some point, but suffice it to say, um, the, the person whose work I probably followed the most closely, uh, who's now since passed away, is Nick Gonzalez, who um, he wasn't an oncologist, but he worked with a lot of cancer patients in his New York City clinic. And he basically, um, in following on the work of his mentor, Kelly, um, did what's is called metabolic. Kelly no, no, Donald, I think Donald Kelly. Donald um, Kelly, was, okay. Yeah, I think he was a dentist. And he himself had been diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And um, so he basically followed his work in terms of what's called metabolic typing or using the kind of diet that is appropriate for you and your constitution. And it's a bit of an oversimplification, but what Kelly found and what Gonzalez followed up on is the fact that a lot of solid mass tumors things like breast cancer, colon cancer, um, prostate cancer, you know, where there's a tumor that you could do surgery on and and excise. Um, Those cancers tend to respond more to a vegetarian diet. And because they're sympathetic dominant cancers and blood cancers like lymphomas and leukemias are more parasympathetic dominant and they tend to respond more to a diet that has more animal protein and fats in it. So, Um, I followed that more parasympathetic diet that's linked to this lymphoma leukemia type of treatment. And so I I still eat, and to this day, a ton of different kinds of vegetables and as much diversity as I can get in my diet and some fruits as well. But I still do have some animal protein um, in addition. I probably don't eat as much as I maybe once did. And I made some small tweaks, like I don't really eat pork anymore. It's just personal choice and such. But I did some juicing. I had plenty of raw vegetables and salads. And, um, and a, you know, I would say a modest amount of animal protein, enough to maintain my weight and my muscle mass and energy levels. So it took some small tweaks, but I think the, the main message within diet is twofold. Is one, always to eat to, to, to heal you. You know, and I don't know, you know, maybe there's some, there's some controversy around this, but I don't know for sure if we can really starve out cancer. Yes, we can fast for periods of time, but I think the cancer is always going to win. It's always going to get what it wants. I think the best um, tack philosophically is to nourish yourself 
eat the foods and, and have a diet that really nourishes you. Find out what your optimized diet is and go from there. The second principle then is if I'm saying that, I also have to basically qualify that the foods that you should be selecting from are just pure nutrient-dense whole foods. That's it. You know, we're, we're, processed foods are out artificial chemicals, those are all, anything like that, you know, in terms of flavor enhancers, MSG, you name it, those are completely, they have no place in a healing diet from anything, let alone cancer. You know, that's me speaking as a clinician now, but um, so get all the junk out, get all the good food in and really focus on that, which really nourishes you and makes you feel alive. And that's kind of the diet that I really endorse in terms of, you know, a, a cancer diet, so to speak. So that's what I filed. And then from there, I kind of just researched just various different herbs, nutraceuticals, things that I can plug in that have um, a lot of evidence base behind them as uh, being helpful for the treatment of cancer. And none of them in, in and of themselves are a cure. None of them in and of themselves are um, a silver bullet. Um, but I feel like collectively, if you can keep them in your system and, and, and kind of pulse them or pulse them in and out, as it were, um, they may have very good long-term benefits. So those are things like turmeric and green tea and medicinal mushrooms and um, hemp has a amazing research, you know, um, research efforts and just trying to figure out how hemp interacts in the body in terms of um, the immune system. So there's a whole bunch of really good stuff out there that uh, green tea is another one. Um, so yeah, these are all uh, excellent different kinds of herbs and such again, that I, most of which I still use to this day, you know, I still take um, regular doses of a, lo a lot of these things. And the last camping category sorry i'm just kind of going on and on here oh, um, is um i had a, a dear friend doctor family doctor um who is trained in anthroposophic medicine and he really introduced me to mistletoe um which is um a therapy that you do by injection it's a, basically a homeo a very specialized homeopathic preparation of mistletoe and um the plant mistletoe and then i uh, and that's something again that i was doing probably a few times a week in the beginning and now i'm doing it only once a week now and i've continued with that and that's based upon rudolf steiner's work um who who posited that um, this specific kind of extract of mistletoe again it's not a silver bullet per se but it can help the body immunologically to identify and to um to treat cancer Wow, very interesting. And I'm not um, familiar with uh, homeopathy. Um, what does that involve? Like when you mentioned, I think you mentioned um, an injection of some kind and, you know, yeah. with mistletoe. Um, what, yeah, what, what is the mechanism and like how, how does that practice um, work? Yeah, I can't say I know a ton about it. I can what I can say is that um, plants have what are called lectins in them, and these are very specific compounds that are the plant's in some ways defense mechanism. And if you ingest, for instance, too much of something that you're sensitive to, let's say you're sensitive to nightshade vegetables, and tomatoes have a very specific lectin in it, that can cause inflammation and problems in your body, maybe joint pain, for instance. Well, there happens to be a very specific kind of lectin, I think that's in the mistletoe, that um, as it's been processed by this very particular, in this very particular way, in the anthroposophic medical tr tradition, that that particular lectin has an ability to uh, kind of um, get the immune system to wake back up. And um, what I know about it, and again, I'm just 
tangentially, um, mistletoe really has a couple things that it really does in the body. And one of them is it tends to warm the body back up again. And um, this has a really interesting history. Um, I write briefly about this in, in my second book, but we know that if someone gets a really high fever, that it can just miraculously cure some cancers. Um, there's something about when the body has a fever, really high fever, let's say, you know, like 103 degrees for an extended period of time, man, it just melts away cancer cells like nobody's business. Um, so there is this idea that if you can simulate a fever, you could heal a lot of different conditions. In fact, that's almost a direct quote from Hippocrates, who um, I'm paraphrasing now, but said something to the effect of if you can grant me a medicine with which to produce a fever, I can cure many diseases. And so there's something about mistletoe that it kind of simulates like your body has been infected with something and it has this kind of gentle warming of the body. Not that it causes a high fever, but it causes this warmth process to come to the body. And that is considered one of the mechanisms or one of the ideas about how it's working. Um, so yeah, I can tell you that much basically without, you know, <laughs> yeah. without, without that much of a background in homeopathy. Obviously I'm, I'm more trained in traditional Chinese medicine, which is my, yeah, my native cord, so to speak. Yeah. And were there any, um, you know, you do work in, um, yeah, in Chinese medicine and in acupuncture. Yeah. Were there any practices like that, that, um, that you underwent, um, after your diagnosis? Yeah, so probably one of the ones that I rely on heavily did then still do is is uh, meditation in, in many different forms. And one of them that I, I like is called Qigong. And Qigong is basically um, kind of like a moving meditation. It's People probably are a bit more familiar with Tai Chi, which is this, you know, this soft, gentle, almost like a slowed down martial art movement that comes from China. Qigong is, Qigong is the precursor to that in some respects. And it's just these very simple postures or movements or breathing exercises that calm the body. And, and what we say in Chinese medicine, at least, is to reinforce the energy flow to the body. So there is a whole host of um, kind of Qigong movements that can be applied for healing. And I have found some that I think particularly work for me that I like and that I've continued with at least that I started with around the time of my diagnosis and that I've kept it up. Now, as a backstory, I've been doing Qigong since I've been about 13 on and off. I mean, I was exposed to it very early in life. And um, it's something that if you're involved in acupuncture and Chinese medicine, you're probably doing some form of Qigong or Tai Chi. You're just drawn to it naturally. Um, but it became a much more you know, regimented practice for me where, you know, every morning I'm getting up and doing these kinds of things. And it, it could be any, any bit, it could be anywhere from doing just a quiet sitting meditation and just trying to calm myself first thing in the morning to doing some of these gentle exercises to even going for a walk in the evening and seeing the sunset and just having the kind of slowing down and appreciation being in nature. I mean, these are all kind of aspects of nature medicine, Qigong uh, as an extension of meditation. So, um, yeah, I think there's a lot there. There really is. It's something also I want to focus on and maybe and write about at some point or what are all these uh, different therapies that we can do ourselves that nurture us and, um, you know, not treat something that's wrong, but accentuate everything that's right about us, you know, really bring that out. So, yeah, absolutely. I, and I still leverage those practices to this day. Well, and, and to your point, that's the good thing about uh, your integrative protocol is, 
you can keep doing it. Um, you know, you can start doing it as soon as you got your diagnosis and there's nothing that's like contraindicated. There's nothing that's, um, that you're doing that is likely to harm you, you know, right. where yeah. like, like you said earlier, you know, the chemo, chemotherapy might attack those cancer cells and it might help take them down, but it's also going to take healthy cells with it. So you can't, you can't do that indefinitely. Sure. Unlike these practices that you're calling out, which you can, um, as you're showing, you know, as you, you're a living example that you can continue these, um, practices. Mm-hmm. I do want to, um, just circle back one, uh, for one thing on, Diet. I I believe in your book you um, referenced this. Would you um, consider it fair to say um, if someone wants to learn more about sort of the um, the clean diet approach that you take, that the Weston A. Price Foundation would be a good resource for them to look at? Absolutely. Yeah, they're an excellent starting point. What I like about the Weston Price Foundation is they don't tell you what to eat. <laughs> <laughs> in, in a way, right? I mean, they they probably do the best job of anyone, in my opinion, of just giving you the umbrella of what is really just nutrient-dense whole food. You know, basically, it answers the question, and this is what West, this is essentially what Weston Price's, Dr. Weston Price's work is, is what is the optimal human diet, right? So that's an easy question to answer, for instance, if you're a barn cat. If you're a barn cat, your, your optimal diet is mice because that's exactly what you do. And you eat a whole food diet. You eat the entire mouse, right? right. Now, that's a, it's a little bit trickier of a question because obviously there are traditional or ancestral peoples all over the globe and they're eating very different types of food. But if you analyze those foods in terms of nutrition, they start to look fairly similar in terms of they have a high amount of fat-soluble vitamins. They usually have a rich source of minerals. Um, They consume some foods raw, some foods cooked. And so when you get down to it, Dr. Weston Price's work basically gives us that umbrella. Okay, what are, what is, what is the sum total of what are these healthy traditional foods? And then once you figured that out, then go find what is ideal for you. Right. So that's biochemical individuality, right? What are the foods then that then heal you on a deep level? And that's going to be different from person to person. It might be different because of ethnicity. You know, my wife is German Norwegian. She can have really heavy foods like stroganoff and feel like a million bucks. I'm Mediterranean. I'd rather have salad and seafood and I feel great. Right. So it's just a question of, you know, what are the foods within that, um, context of what is healthy nutritious whole foods and then go from there and so yes the western price foundation does a good job of teaching those principles those fundamental principles yeah i i agree and yeah i um i don't know if i can hear any conversation about western a price without dropping in just what a powerful book that is his his book nutrition and physical degeneration um it's it's the most powerful book I've ever read. Um, just the way he traveled the world and um, saw the drastic changes that happened pretty much immediately in all of these um, ancestral populations or in, in all of these uh, populations all over the world. As soon as they uh, dropped their traditional diet and went with um, kind of an Americanized or Westernized diet, the immediate and drastic changes in health are mind-boggling and yeah. um you know so the the foundation does a good job of uh breaking down 
his work and uh, trying to get good information out out to the people um, about his work and about similar uh, learning that's been done since then. Absolutely. Um, you know, you were um, you know you were fortunate to have some some good like clinician friends and uh, people to uh, to lean on for uh, for support and for resources after your uh, diagnosis with lymphoma. Um, but I'm curious, what were uh, some of the challenges um, on your um, on your journey to healing? Yeah. So I have one major one. It's the first thing that comes to mind for sure is um, this, despite the fact that I very uh, quickly got into remission, you know, within several months, um, I did have gastrointestinal symptoms that that uh, were, were that continued um, through through the years, um, and so I these episodes of bowel obstruction that I've had that led to the diagnosis. Um, even though the tumors had shrunk, it almost as if my intestines never really fully went back to normal. And so I have, unfortunately, I've had some episodes um, even since then. I've even had a couple this year, unfortunately, um, that I think in some ways maybe were more stress-related. Um, but yeah, every once in a while, I might have some minor GI issues, and every once in a while, I'll have a bigger issue where I feel like I get backed up a little bit. And the the explanation is likely just scar tissue from where the actual tumors were, that there's probably areas of my small intestine that um, have the, you know, at least the, the propensity to form a, a small bowel obstruction. So I just have to be really careful. This is also something I've written about because um, it's not, there's not a lot of good holistic information about how to treat a small bowel obstruction. So I, I wrote a monograph about it that I threw up on Amazon. And um, it, it's just a management issue. You know, I've had some related diagnosis of GI disruption ones called SIBO or small intestinal bacteria overgrowth that I've had to overcome. And I've done that very successfully with some small dietary tweaks and some herbal supplements and such. But um, I just got to be careful. I can't overeat. And I'm Italian and I love to eat, but that's not going to happen much anymore. Because if I, if I overeat and, I, and I, or I, I'm just sluggish and I'm not exercising or not moving, I can kind of get backed up and that can lead to some, some pretty intense abdominal pain. Um, so, yeah, it's just one of the things I have to live with now. It's kind of what I, you know, the legacy of the cancer, so to speak, in me is that it just kind of left my body a little bit altered, but um, there could be worse things. So yeah. I deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. No one, no one gets out of a cancer diagnosis without some form of psychological or physical fallout, for sure. I mean, you know, and the psychological in some ways is, is the more prominent of the two because, you know, you could still have dark days and um, it's only something that you think about. But, yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, one thing I wanted to check on, you know, you mentioned uh, earlier that you ask your oncologist right away, hey, if this um, – if this goes into remission for five years, um, would you think there's something different about me? And, you know, here we are five years later. Yeah. So um, have you talked to your oncologist about that? <laughs> and, and, you know, have you had that conversation? Uh, not really, not in so many words. I think it's just um, acknowledge that I'm doing well and keep doing what you're doing, which, yeah. which is great. I mean, um, you know, he doesn't ask too many questions. And I think he trusts me also as a healthcare worker, um, that I'm taking very good care of myself. 
And, you know, maybe from their perspective, they're waiting for the other shoe to drop, you know, and that could be true. I don't know. I mean, I will tell you this. I mean, I don't want to sound cavalier like I've got it all figured out. Um, That's certainly not the case. All I can say is that I've done pretty well up until this point. And I'm grateful for every day that I have. And I don't know what the future holds. Um, But again, I just fall back on to at least the logic that the therapies that I did initiate in 2015 did, did well, and I have continued doing them. And it is a lifelong journey now. I, I, I think one of the biggest mistakes that any cancer patient can make, you know, and this is my opinion, is to just basically wash their hands of it and say that I'm done. And, and you know, and that's true of even conventional therapy. I think it's a, it's a mistake to say, I got this breast cancer diagnosis. I'll just get this lump back to me. Maybe I'll do a little bit of tamoxifen. I'll get a clean bill of health. And then life's going to go back to like it was before. I think for me, um, there's a kind of a razor's edge that I try to walk um, feeling like I'm still a cancer patient, but still going on with my life, if that makes sense. Um, I don't want to just you know, and, and, and this is echoed. I tell this story in my next book. Um, I had a patient who I think it was 10 years later after his first diagnosis got a, a reoccurrence. And he looked at me and he said, and because he recognized his mistake and he said, I got lazy. He said, don't ever let that happen to you. Um, in a sense that he let his self-care go. He, he, he kind of fell back into old patterns. Um, so I really feel like for me, at least, you know, I wake up every morning with cancer as my friend. It's a teacher. And I say, you know, um, I'm going to, I'm going to take every, I'm like, as if I'm in bar, on borrowed time, you know, I'm going to walk every day with, with the perspective that um, I'm here to make the world a better place, help my family, help my patients and be grateful for every day that I have. And then just keep walking this walk of how do I create, how do I engender um, ever greater levels of health within myself? Wow. That's that's a really, uh, really powerful thought, a terrific mindset, and um, you know, your your world and those around you, I'm sure, are impacted positively by that mindset that you uh, bring to the world. So, thank you for, uh, yeah, for just carrying that on um, in your life. Um, I'm curious how you. Um, how you look at this question, um, you know, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is considered incurable. Right. Um, and, you know, you're in remission five years later. Yeah. Do you consider yourself cured of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma? So in some ways, that's the perfect question. <laughs> it really is. And I'm going to give you a nuanced answer. Um, I distinguish between healing and curing. So healing for me is, in some ways, as I mentioned before, you know, being a stronger, more empowered person on the other side of whatever trial you are going through. And so for me, I think it is extremely, um, not only is it possible, I think it's extremely important to recognize that we can be on our deathbed from a disease that, is, that we had not, have not been able to cure, but be healed in the process. Um, on a deep emotional, spiritual level, right? You know, to really become a different person because of the, the whatever trial that we have gone through. Now, having said that, um, I have also a different perspective on cure. And 
we have the saying in medicine, there are no incurable diseases, there are only incurable patients, right? You can look up any disease, I don't care what it is, someone has found a way to live out the rest of their lives healthfully without any fallout or complications from whatever that disease is, okay? That's including every single type of cancer. So one of the books that I read shortly after my diagnosis, which was um, very formative for me, was Radical Remission by Kelly Turner, I believe. And she just basically does nothing but go through case study after case study after case study of people who have been handed a diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis, and against all odds had gotten themselves in remission for years, if not decades later. Okay, radical remission, right? So you get the concept. And so um, my ultimate answer to your question of cure or not is, I don't know, and it doesn't even matter to me anymore. Um, you know, I might still have cancer cells in me, but guess what? Most people walking around do as well. You know, it's just, it's just the, um, the factor of, is their body in enough harmony that it's keeping those cancer cells at bay? So that's one option that I've given myself in terms of mindset that I will always have cancer. There are always going to be small little pockets, but if I am in deep harmony with nature and within my own health and wellness, that that's not going to produce anything that's going to become problematic for me ever again. Okay. That's certainly one possibility. Another possibility is that, yes, all those cancer cells have been well annihilated by this point from everything that I've done and I won't have any issues going into the future, but I don't answer that. So I have to kind of play this game of, again, taking care of myself day in and day out and walking this razor's edge. And frankly, I'd rather be that way, like I said, and think those thoughts than just kind of fall back into complacency. That makes sense. And that's a, a great answer. Um, nuanced, like, like all of your writing is. I, I really appreciated <laughs> that in your writing. Um, you, um, you know, on the, on the blog post that I read, you don't so much tell the reader what to think, but you present things in a very thought-provoking way that kind of encourages the reader to uh, think about it for themselves, get their own perspective, and um, you know you can, and you can we can learn from um, the perspective that you bring, but also have to think for ourselves. So um, I feel like your answer to that question falls right in line with uh, with your writing and probably the just the way you um, approach a lot of things. Um, now that you've improved your health, this is the the question we ask everybody on on the podcast, now that you've improved your health, what's one thing you enjoy doing that you couldn't do before? <laughs> I have a lovely answer for this. So I have a new passion in life and it's um, parkour, if you know what that is. <laughs> I do. So, yeah, so parkour, for those who don't know it, who are listening, it, it's kind of basically the mastery of movement. It's, 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 the, um, it's the sport or the art form of how you move your body a, around obstacles and such. Um, and so one of the things um, that I did around my diagnosis year is I was still, um, again, looking for things to make me feel stronger and more empowered. And I saw these videos of guys doing parkour. And it looked so cool, right? They're diving over things, they're climbing walls. They look like ninjas. It was just awesome. And I said, I want to do that. <laughs> and as it, lo and behold, there was someone in the next town over who was teaching and had done it for years. And so I connected with him and I've done it ever since. And 
I am happy to say that I, I am probably in the best shape of my life now at age 40 um, by constantly training and doing parkour. And I'm learning new things all the time. I'm learning how to use my body and master my movement. And that probably never would have happened uh, if I had not gone through this healing journey, right? So um, I'm always learning new stuff. I, I absolutely love the art form. It's just been um, just a, a godsend for me to keep me feeling stronger and empowered day in and day out. Wow. I, I did not see that coming. I, <laughs> that, that is so cool. That's definitely a first for, uh, for this podcast, uh, for that answer. No one has, uh, no one else has listed parkour as um, the thing they can do now. So I can that, do it. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, <laughs> you know, are there any resources that you'd like to recommend? I know, um, you know, you listed some off earlier um, as we were um, kind of doing a little bit of a deep dive into some of your integrative protocols. But is there anything that jumps to mind uh, for someone who wants to research your approach of healing from cancer? Um, yeah. Is there any specific resource? Yeah, so I'll, I'll give you a general and then more specific. I think if someone's just curious generally about healing from anything, um, in a way where maybe it's against the norm or unconventional. Um, one of the resources that I still go back to is Andrew Wilde's book, um, Spontaneous Healing. And the reason why is because um, that's a book that just will open your mind to possibility. You know, Andrew Wilde does an amazing job as an integrative medical doctor of just showing what is possible in, in, a, in not just cancer, but just a, a number of different things. I mean, or I should say it this way, what the human body is, is capable of healing from. And then specifically um, about cancer, I think that book, Radical Remission, is an excellent first step. I often do recommend that to cancer patients because that is a great book to help with that whole mindset. You know, what is possible and at least open the doors of possible ability. And then from there, you could, uh, again, once you kind of have your head and heart in the game, so to speak, uh, look for more specific things. We talked about the Weston Price Foundation. Their website's great for the fundamentals of diet and such. And then, then from there, from there, do some digging. You know, I, I definitely write a lot blog-wise about cancer. It's one of the more dominant topics that I cover. Um, so if patients or people, I should say, want to connect with me there, they're certainly welcome to. And, um, and yeah, and then good luck on your journey because it is a journey. Yeah. And, um, you know, you mentioned your, um, your website there. Um, can you say what the website is? And do you have any other... Um, any other ways for people to reach out to you online? Sure. Yeah. So uh, it's just basically my name.com. So Brandon LaGreca, which is Brandon, L-A-G-R-E-C-A.com. Um, that'll kind of get you to my parent website. And if you just want to jump straight to kind of my, my work, um, empoweredpatientblog.com, because that's the name of my blog the empowered patient. So empowered patient blog, I do a monthly newsletter and I talk about all sorts of fun stuff and um, yeah. And then you can always connect with me there. That's actually a good place to, to reach out if you, if someone wanted to learn more. Perfect. And um, I'll throw a, a quick plug out for, uh, for your book, um, cancer and EM, EMF radiation. We didn't even uh, dive in on that. Yeah. Today, but um, I mean, that, that book is a wealth of knowledge about, um, you know, about some of the different electromagnetic fields that are around and yep. you know, that can be related to anything from the electrical currents running through your house to um, 
Wi-Fi to 5G and uh, some of the different impacts that uh, those have. I know I found that to be a really, um, really interesting read. Um, Thank you. Is there, um, I don't know, just coming back around to it, is there anything you want to say in relation to um, to your story and EMFs and how, yeah. you know, did you do anything um, in in that area in your protocol? Sure, um, absolutely. And it's, it's um, I don't feel again like the EMF was like the absolute you know, cause of my cancer or anybody's cancer for that matter. But I, I do what I, at least what I try to do in that book is to document the fact that it is a human carcinogen. And so it is adding to the soup of the things that we are exposed to, which are weakening our body um, and potentially causing cancer, again, within the greater context of raw, raw health and environmental medicine. So it's one topic of many. And so what I would encourage people to do is, you know, think of that, the whole EMF story as one thing that you have control over. Okay. Diet's another, you know, environmental toxin exposure and doing detoxification. That's another subject. And it really behooves you as, for instance, a cancer patient to really look at all these different areas because we don't know where the major contribution is coming from. And so absolutely in the process of learning in my research for that book, you know, we, we took several steps. For instance, we don't have wireless in our home anymore. We have all ethernet cables um, connecting. Um, and so small things like that. I mean, yes, I have a cell phone. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not, you know, a Luddite by any means, but I keep it in airplane mode for most of the time. I don't really, I don't have it on in terms of it being operational, but when anywhere it's in contact with my body, I don't carry it around running, so to speak. So yeah, I mean, there's small things like that. And that book just kind of delves into all these little um, things that you can do. It isn't, it's not just highlighting the problem. I mean, at least half the book is dedicated towards solutions and what you can do to, um, to protect yourself. So. Yeah. I, I appreciated that about the book and um, yeah, it's got, got good information on the science and also on, uh, the practical, what you can yep. do. Um, yep. So thank you, Brandon. I really appreciate you um, taking the time to um, share your story here today. Um, is there anything else that um, you want to say in closing? Well, no, just thank you for having me on your podcast. It was a pleasure and I enjoyed talking with you and, and hopefully that um, you know the my words can, can reach out to, into the ethers here of the pod, podcast world and, um, and help somebody else in the process. I'd be, um, I would be grateful if, that, if it did. So thank you, thank, you, thank you for listening to You Cured What? Join us again soon for another story of healing.